Okay, please turn with me to Psalm 131, and we are actually closing out our Summer Connect series on Psalm 131 on the Psalms of Ascent, and there are actually more Psalms of Ascent that we're not going to be able to dive into, and we're actually jumping ahead to Psalm 131, and there are a few more after Psalm 131, but Psalm 131 is all about the theme of hope. So I thought that it would be great to finish our study on these great psalms, this set of psalms that God's people would sing as they would journey to worship God to Jerusalem. I thought it would be great to close out our series on the theme of hope. So let's read Psalm 131 together, and then I'll pray and then we'll dive in. So read with me starting in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us to understand, to know, to live, and to tell about your hope. The hope that is free, the hope that is beyond circumstance, the hope that is true and alive and eternal from this time forth and forevermore. Help us to know this and live it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the books that I've been reading as a compliment, um, as a friend, so to speak, in this series that's been helping me learn about the Psalms of Ascent is a book called Longing for Home, which we developed the title of this series around. And in that book, Stephen Yuley, in his commentary on this psalm, tells a story about somebody named Viktor Frankl and his experience with hope as it relates to his time in a concentration camp. And many Christians, pastors and teachers and so on, Bible study leaders, when they talk on hope, they bring this up because of how powerful it is in understanding how, how important and how essential hope is to just living. So in that book, Stephen Yuley says this about Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, wrote of his imprisonment in the horrors of Auschwitz, describing cold, fear, pain, vermin, starvation, and exhaustion. But he said he survived because he never lost hope. He also wrote of what would happen when a prisoner did lose hope. He would refuse to get out of bed, refuse to dress or wash, turning a deaf ear to his friends pleading and his captors threatening. He would simply lie in his bed until he died, having surrendered all hope. And then the author, Stephen Yuley, goes on to say this, Hope is absolutely crucial to Christians. When it weakens, the result is always the same, spiritual inertia. It's imperative, therefore, to remember that we are on a journey still a long way from home, and that hope is the fuel that keeps us going. We must always guard it and nurture it. I love that. Hope is the fuel that keeps us going, 
And we must even daily guard it, seek it, and nurture it. Hope really is essential to our survival. Without hope, we cannot survive. Additionally, a blind hope or a false hope can, de- can be just as detrimental to our existence as no hope, like the no hope that the author talked about that I just read in the quote. And since hope cannot be cultivated by our own hands, since we can't make up our own hope, to understand true and lasting hope, we must go to the scriptures to read about how the God of hope has provided hope for us. And when we read the scriptures, biblical hope is not the deliverance from hard or uh, difficult circumstances, right? Rather, biblical hope is deliverance to God. That's so essential in our understanding of hope. That, that biblical hope isn't deliverance from hardship. Because so much often we think that to be, hope, to be in a place of hope means that we are hoping about the removal of a particular circumstance, the removal of a difficult relationship, or the acquisition of a particular set of circumstances, or the acquisition of a particular set of friends, or whatever it may be. Rather, biblical hope is not the deliverance from something, but it's the deliverance to something. It's a deliverance from a false hope to a long and eternal and everlasting hope. That is what hope is. It's not the removal of disorienting circumstances. Rather, biblical hope is the deliverance from dead and false hopes to a living and true hope. And this true hope is not in a particular set of hope for circumstances, like I said, but it is in God Himself and what He has promised us and what He has done for us. Stephen Yule, in his book, goes on to say this, Oftentimes, we are saddled with clumsy definitions and so don't quite understand the concept of hope. It is to believe, is it to believe that anything can happen? Is it to expect that things will get better? Is it to wish for something against all odds? Is it to maintain a sunny outlook despite what happens? No, it isn't any of those things. He says, simply put, to hope is to wait confidently and expectantly for what God has promised. And in one, Psalm 131, we see something about David, who's the author of this psalm, and what he knows about God and what he knows about his, his earthly sojourn that d- makes him declare that God is his hope. And that's the big idea for us, that God is our hope. God is the thing, that having him and who he is, is the thing that will, is essential to our survival. It is the thing that keeps us going knowing who God is and what He has done for us. And in verses, um, it's only three short verses of this text, but, but what I want us to, to see is that because God is our hope, we can repent of our despair, and, and, and that doesn't mean that we, we repent of our sadness. It's okay to be sad. David and other psalmists write about being sad and being in despair. What I mean by that is the despair of of. of of giving ourselves to false hopes or counterfeit hopes, right? We can be aware of and repent of that because we know that God is objectively our hope. We can repent of the subjective hopes that we put our our faith in in this life. But not just that, we can also rest in His care. So that's, that's our outline. Because God is our hope, that's the big idea. We can repent of our despair, which is we see in, in verse 1. 
And then because God is our hope, we can rest in his care, which is what we see in verses 2 and 3. So let's dive into verse 1. I'll reread it again and talk and, and work this out a little bit about what this means that we can repent of our despair or our false hopes. So let me read. In verse 1 it says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy my, myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. It's interesting here that that verse 1 really is, it's a statement of repentance. Uh, David declares, O Lord, he looks to God, right? He, he acknowledges that he knows God. He calls him by his personal name, right? His covenantal name. He has a personal relationship with God. And he, he reflects on and looks to God who is the giver of something, the giver of hope. And because he sees that God is the, the giver of hope, he is quick to confess how he has given himself to lesser hopes, about how he is experiencing the despair that comes from giving himself to lesser hopes. And he communicates that in three ways, how his heart, his eyes, and just basically his hands, that he doesn't occupy himself with things, right? It's his whole person. He says that, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. And this is language of affection, right? He's saying that he has a misplaced affection, that he is not giving his heart to God and the giver of hope, but he has put his heart, his affection, his longing into something else. And for us to have hope in God, right, like David, who is the author of this psalm, he invites us to know that if we are to have hope, we, we must come to terms with how we give ourselves to false affections because in the end we long for that thing that we give affection to to repay us back with hope to get us through our earthly journey. Right, This phrase that, that David says, how his heart is not lifted up, it reveals his pride that resides in his heart. The, the, the glory of self, so to speak, that his heart is not lifted up towards God, but it's curved in on himself and his own agenda. It says, and, then, and then secondly, it says that his eyes are not raised too high. This is language of worship and ambition. David claims that his eyes just aren't, aren't looking up to God, and it reveals this type of pride, this craving for acceptance, admiration, that, that he is looking to things on earth to provide for him a sense of, of affection, of hope. And he is confessing that his eyes are not on God, but they're on the things of this earth. And then lastly, he says that he does not occupy himself with things too great or with things too marvelous. And again, he doesn't define specifically Rather, he defines generically of, of, of these things, right? He is saying that his aspirations are off. His aspirations are, are, are not the things mightily and greatly, the things of God. Rather, they are the things of earth. This is language used by David to communicate what happens when a prideful heart see, seeks after something. It is from hope in the Lord. It is not from hope in the Lord, but rather from a toil of aspiring after things of this earth that he thinks are great and marvelous. And then it says, you know, um, it, 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 and then it, it, it closes um, in verse 2. It, it transitions in verse 2 with but, right? So you, you have a, a, not just a confession, but also a turning, a looking to something else. And here we see something really interesting about David, right, in his hope. He, he basically gives us an explanation of, of what it looks like to put hope in yourself, to put hope in, in, in your own doing, in your own work, in your own pride. 
in that book that I mentioned, uh, Stephen Uly also says this, When it's all said and done, pride is the sin of all sins. Satan rebelled because he wanted to be like God. Adam and Eve did the same thing. God abhors other sinners. But against the proud, he professes open defiance and hostility. Pride really is our biggest problem. Not poor health, not rebellious children, difficult neighbors, broken relationships, excuse me, financial problems, unfulfilled dreams, or daunting affections. We cannot say our hope is in God if we first do not see the bankruptcy of putting our hope in ourselves. Our intellect, our charm, our plans, our resources, our power, our connections, or whatever else. We cannot hope in God if we hope in ourselves. And if we hope in self, we will only find despair. But if we hope in God, we will find life, no matter what the circumstances. And that's the big action from this, is that, is that because our hope is in God, that is, that is not natural for us to look to God to provide a sense of stability in the midst of instability, to provide a sense of, of refuge in the midst of our fear. We have to turn from our pride, from our, our, our self-glory. We have to turn from trying to cultivate our own hopes before we must embrace the God of hope. We cannot hope in God without having an awareness, an addressing, and a repenting of the dead and false hopes that we often so look to to provide for us a sense of order in our disorder or refuge in our fear. To behold our hope in God, we must get our eyes off of the brokenness of our own pride and behold what is beautiful in God. We must repent of our despair from hoping in false hopes and embrace the God who freely gives us hope now and forever. And let me give you an example of one false hope that I often see people and myself giving themselves to, which is the false hope of earthly affirmation, or what you can call the praise of others. So many of us think that we will be okay if we are just recognized. Therefore, our studies don't become something that we see as a gift from God to be stewarded, for the good of others, but we look at our studies as a way to be praised by others and affirmed by others. The same is true for our accomplishments in sports or the arts. We use performance on the athletic field or on the stage as a way to seek praise from others instead of a way of glorifying God and bringing life, enjoyment, and happiness to others. And when this happens, when we become curved in ourselves in this way, we, all, we will always find despair and not hope. And this is why repentance is key. To have hope in God, this means that we must, we must repent. And that if we're going to be okay, we must turn away from, from seeking affirmation from others and, and rest in the affirmation that we have in God through the person and work of Christ that we respond to by faith now and forever. That is what hope is. So what is it for you? What is the thing that if you say, if I have this, I will be okay? For in the this, whatever your this is, you will find your sense of ultimate hope. The Christian hope is a life that is deeply aware of our tendencies to give ourselves to false hopes. And that is also deeply aware 
that it is only God who can give us hope and who can give us rest from the toil of seeking after vain hopes, that in the, the despair that comes with seeking after vain hopes. So that's what we have in our, our first part. Because God is our hope, right? Because God is our hope, we can be freely repent of our despair that, that comes from false hopes. So we have a way out. We have a freedom God has provided a way for us in Christ through His Word, through His Spirit. And He's given us examples from His people who have walked with Him on what it looks like to turn from false hopes, whatever the this is that, that you think will, will make you okay, to turn from that, to, to, to step away and to embrace the reality that God is the giver of true of everlasting hope, which is Himself not in a particular circumstance that you might wish that He would give you, but in, in God Himself. And secondly, the second point is, is because God is our hope, we can, we can rest, we can repent and we can rest. We can have freedom from the toil of giving ourselves to vain hopes and we can rest in the reality of His care for us. Look with me in verse 2. It says this, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother like a weaned child is my soul within me one author says this humility arises from a biblical understanding of who we are and who god is which leads to an absolute submission to and absolute dependence upon god you know david here he confesses his pride and although he does we see that the Lord has humbled him and he has shown him the bankruptcy of his own pride, which has led him to a deep sense of repentance, humility, repentance, humility, and dependence. But, right, although that David knows that he has experienced the bankruptcy of his false hope and even the brokenness of false hope, he knows that God in his goodness has not left him there that God has taught him to depend on him and to rest in him. And that's what that illustration of a, is, a, is of a weaned child, right? That, that David has moved from the anxious toil of self-exaltation to the quiet stillness of God's dependence. And he uses the illustration of a weaned child. A weaned child is, this is one author saying this, a weaned child is reliant upon his mother for everything. And he rests in his mother's provision. Similarly, David calms and quiets his soul by cultivating dependence, recognizing that all things come from God. You know, David's soul, his personhood, all that he is, his soul is quieted and calmed, not because of what he obtained or because of the removal from a certain set of circumstances. Rather, it is because of who he finds his dependence in who is God himself. And then I love in verse 3 how it turns from this, this personal narrative or this personal story of David's repentance, of repentance of lesser hopes, and then dependence on God, which is ultimately a definition of hope. It's to be an utter dependence upon God, who he is and what he has done for us. He now then turns to the nation of Israel, right? His personal hope is now being a testimony proclaimed to all those around him. He says, O oh, Israel, everyone, now that I've, I have experienced this hope, you too hope in the Lord. 
from this time forth and forevermore, from now and forever. David moves from sharing his personal experience of how he went from hoping in himself to hoping in God. He, he, he now declares a public declaration and a call to, to others, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to share in the hope that he now has. You know, David, like I've said, recognizes the destruction of false hope and exhorts others to follow in the hope that he now has in God. And not just once, but now and forever. You know, Stephen Yuley, again, he just has so many good things to say about hope in his commentary on, on Psalm 131. And, and, and here he says this, Hope is fixed on God's attributes. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. This is Psalm 62.5. Then he goes on to say this, There is no hope in God if God isn't immutable, which means that He will never change. Right, because his promises, if he's not, if he's if he's not immutable, then his promises might be altered. And where is hope? Then he says there is no hope if God isn't sovereign. Right, that God is king, that He has the final say. Because if He's not, then His promises might be changed or thwarted, or taken by someone else. There is no hope if God isn't omniscient. Right, if God isn't all knowing, because His promises might be misdirected or or misinformed. There is no hope if God isn't omnipotent or if God isn't all-powerful because His promises might be hindered if if something more powerful comes along. But since He is all these things and so much more, we can have hope because this is who God is. And this kind of hope serves as a strong anchor to the soul, as, as the author says. The thing that grounds us, the thing that keeps us, even when there's so much disorientation and destruction around us. And one cannot share that hope with others, right? Just like David, he went from experiencing it to sharing it. One cannot share that hope that they have in God without first resting in that hope themselves. The greatest witness to the world around us about the hope that we have in God is to be living it out. It's to be doing it. It's to be having it. You know, when the world is watching around us, who doesn't have this hope? Your friends, your siblings, your coworkers, or whoever else when the watching world around us freaks out because of hard circumstances, but they see people who go through those same circumstances but are rooted or anchored or grounded, when they see this, they'll begin to wonder why we are so different and what we have that they don't have. And when they ask you, why are you so different, be ready to tell them that it is because of your hope and that it is not in something or having something or being someone but that your hope is in God who created you, saves you, and keeps you. I often see Christians, and especially you know, uh, teenagers, have a longing to share the hope that they have in Jesus with others, the hope that they have in God with others. But they are often hindered because they believe the lie that in order to share Jesus with others, they have to have all the right answers to all the right questions. Many experience what people often say, paralysis by analysis. Many feel like they can't share their hope because they aren't the best wordsmiths and they are fearful of what people might ask him and, and having the wrong question. But, but let me remind you of what 1 Peter 3.15 says and that it reminds us that we are to give an answer for the hope that we already have. What if instead of thinking we have to love people by having all their answers, we love people by demonstrating and declaring the hope that we already have in Jesus? 
It is really easy to share a meal that you already have been given with the person next to you. You just show it to them and ask them if they want any. In the same way, it is really easy to share the hope that you already have in Jesus. You just live it out in front of them, you show it to them, and you ask them if they want it too. So my question is, who? Who in your life is in your life that you are seeking to share this hope with? This could be someone who has no idea of the hope of Jesus that you're praying for and pursuing. This could be somebody who already has this confessed hope in Jesus, but they're just having a hard time and they need to be reminded of the hope that they have. The question for us isn't just what are you doing, but it's who are you doing it to? Who are you loving by intentionally living out your hope in Christ in front of? Because the world is is in desperate need of a greater hope that is beyond their circumstances. And know that a hope shared is a hope enjoyed. You can experience a deeper joy in the hope that you have in in God. Share it with other people and, and begin to watch God work His hope in their life as well. So as we see in Psalm 131, because God is our hope, we can repent of our despair, right? And that's not just, I don't mean that as a, as a general term, as repent of our sadness, but, but particularly the despair that we receive from giving ourselves to false or lesser hopes. And we can, because God is our hope, we can, we can rest in His care. And that rest isn't just a, a laziness, but rather that is, a, that, is a, that is an anchoring that is also that is also proclaimed to others, lived out and proclaimed to others. Uh, let, me, let me close with this. Romans 5, 3 through 6 says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Hope truly does not disappoint. True and living hope does not disappoint. Hope in God does not disappoint. A false and dead hope will always disappoint and keep on disappointing us. However, when we, our hope is in God, right? We doesn't mean that we will not experience despairing times, but we will never experience the despair of a false hope. Because God is our hope, and we will never be disappointed. We will never be put to shame. So as we close out our series on the Psalm of Ascent, the song that God's people sang on their earthly pilgrimage, it is fitting that we focus our hearts on hope, because it is only the hope of God that will keep us going. Just like from the example of Viktor Frankl and those who persevered in hope through one of the greatest examples of human suffering in history, the Holocaust, those who had hope were able to endure. And I don't know what life might throw at you, but, but, but hope in God is the only way to endure. Therefore, let us be a people who hope in God, because God is our hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father, amen. Let us be a people who hope in God because God is our hope. Let us be a people who hope in you because you are worthy of our hope. Let us be people who rest in you because you are the giver of rest. Let us be a people who repent of the lesser hopes that we give ourselves to because you are 
you are you are a God of mercy and grace and long to give us hope freely. Not hope that we can cultivate with our own hands, but hope that you have provided to us through the person and work of Christ. Father, let us hope in you from this day forth and forevermore. Amen.